Hello, everyone. You're listening to Angel Nears, the podcast. Angel Nears is a Silicon Valley community for startup builders where experienced operators share their firsthand knowledge on how to build and scale startups. I'm your host, Oleg Kujikov, and our guest today is Bob Johnston, co-founder and CEO of Sponsor Hub, a SaaS marketing platform that provided advertisers with measurement of their sponsorships, mainly across sports and entertainment. Sponsor Hub was acquired in 2015 by Rentrack, which is now Comscore. Today, Bob runs the Executive Council, a global community of corporate leaders, startup founders, and investors. Today, we're talking with Bob about his experience around bringing efficiencies to the sponsorship industry. But before we get into that, Bob, welcome to the show. Excited to be here. Thank you, Oleg. Looking forward to the conversation. All right. Well, Bob, tell me a little bit about yourself. Uh, we're actually just meeting for the first time. So yeah, tell, tell me about yourself, maybe how you how you got to this point. So I guess uh, specifically related to the world of sponsorship, I've actually been doing this for longer than I would care to admit, which has been about 20, 22 years or so. And I started off in the wild world of sponsorship when I was living in Massachusetts. And I was... Uh, working for a startup called Logal Software, L-O-G-A-L. And Logal was an Israeli-based startup. They raised a bunch of venture money. This was 1996. And you know, this was pretty early days with the internet. And um, Logal had a product that they sold to schools, which was science and math software that ran over the internet, which sounds... Of course, now, well, everything runs over the internet. But back then in 1996, if you were trying to stream software from your company servers at a startup like Logal, right? Like streaming your science and math software to schools real time to their servers was very tricky. And so these guys were very early on, you know, they were sort of a pioneer within the education space and, you know, this kind of the education tech space, if you will. And so long and short of it is in the mid nineties in Massachusetts, there were just a lot of these great startups like Logal Software and many others, but there wasn't a community of founders like you see nowadays in lots of markets where you're able to get together and share knowledge and ideas with, with founders. And more to the point, there was no way to get to the VCs, you know, the the VCs were hard to reach. They were behind a wall. And so the reason why I got involved with the world of sponsorship is that I created an organization in Boston in, in 1996. It was called MassEcom, the Mass E-Commerce Association. And this was, you know, when e-commerce was all the rage, and of course it, it still is. And so the goal of Mass Ecom was to be this trade association, if you will, for founders and for VCs, you know, to come together and just to just to shake hands, you know, and meet each other. There wasn't much of a business model wrapped around it back then, but eventually we got to it. We, this, this organization started with humble roots of just trying to be a connector. Like, how can we bring together all these great founders, you know, that are in the Boston area from MIT and Harvard, you know, and Cambridge and you know, and so forth and bring them all together once a month for a networking opportunity, just, just, you know, just to hang out and meet. And, um, the first year's worth of, of the meet and greets we were doing felt more like you're just hanging out at a bar with friends and having a cocktail. And that was kind of the purpose of it 
was just to meet new people that are in this industry, you know, this new industry. And eventually we got sponsors involved. We got Silicon Valley Bank. We got, you know, the Ernest and Youngs. We eventually were bringing these larger sponsors to come sponsor these events because they, of course, wanted to meet all these entrepreneurs and venture capitalists. So when you, when I think about sponsorship, I don't think about what we did at Sponsor Hub. I think about sponsorship of just offline live events, face-to-face gatherings. And then if you fast forward, of course, to 2011, when we launched Sponsor Hub, that that was much more of, hey, let's like leverage the internet. Let's, let's leverage technology to create a two-sided marketplace whereby you can bring together the sellers of sponsorship, which are the event organizers, and the buyers of sponsorship, which are, like I mentioned, the Silicon Valley banks and the Ernst & Youngs of the world. And so that's kind of where we started to think about, hey, is there some technology tool that you can use here to connect the buyers and the sellers? And it was a bit of a long tail play, frankly, because the sponsorship industry is, you know, is just incredibly sliced up, if you will. There's not one large player. There's just thousands of smaller players. So thousands of event organizers. And I think a good example is, you know, like an Eventbrite, right? Like you look at Eventbrite, fantastic platform, publicly traded company, like they have tens of thousands of event organizers that are running through their platform. Like there isn't, you know, there's not one big event organizer that we all would say has a lion's share of the event industry. That just is now the events industry works. So, so anyway, that's a quite a long response to your question, but I think it at least kind of tees up my feelings around sort of where sponsorship has been and where it's going. And it's still a crazy industry. It's $55 billion industry. It's frankly, probably larger than that. That's just the sponsorships that are able to be tracked, you know, but if, but if you were to go to like super local events where you've got a little league team in your hometown that has, you know, some local sponsors and so forth. Yeah, I'm not sure that all all that stuff is being tracked either, but it's a it's just a big messy industry and so it you know, it it does need more t- technology and of course as we all know there's been great startups in the space over the past 5 to 10 years or so. So I think that's yeah, I think that's wonderful. Well, that was a great intro. Thank you for for doing that. I guess I just have one follow-up when it comes to the sponsorship industry. You said it's so segmented, yet there's like, you know, the 55B, those billions and billions of dollars in it. So can you take me through maybe the logic of of why there's not, you know, one dominant player in sponsorships, or at least why you think? So I guess when I think of a dominant player, I think about... I don't know. I think about an Airbnb, for example, you know, that somehow has just been able to capture a pretty big chunk, you know, of this, of this home rental space. And they're basically like a data company with homes that are at the end of the pipe, right? And you could say the same thing with a Casper. They're a data company and and they have mattresses that are at the end of the data pipe, right? So in the sponsorship world, I've, I have yet to see a company that, that has scaled really, really large that's got sponsorships at the end of the pipe. There's a a handful of folks that are trying to figure this out still. Um, And my belief is that, and this is after 
thinking about this for a long time. It's like, if you're a large brand, like a large advertiser that has to deploy a whole pile of money for your advertising, sponsorship is that one piece of your advertising budget that you really still can prove the return on the investment. Whereas with social media advertising, with out of home, you know, all the billboard stuff, right? Like with, with TV, with every other form of advertising, it's very easy to track the return on the investment. You know what the ROI is. With sponsorship, it's sort of hard to figure out what the ROI is. So that to me is probably why there's not a single player. And that also is probably why at Sponsor Hub, at about year number two-ish, we actually pivoted the business and we moved away from the marketplace where you had these buyers and sellers matching them up to a SaaS tool that we were selling to large advertisers to do exactly what I just mentioned, to track the return on the investment of their sponsorships. And these were big deals. These were like Puma. We, we had Puma that we used in our platform and AT&T, you know, and Bose and a bunch of others that were using the platform to measure the effect, the effectiveness of, of literally tens of millions of dollars that they were deploying to sponsor sports teams and athletes and all other kinds of things like large events, you know, and conferences. So if you think about like the missing piece of sponsorship, I think it's ROI, you know, and that's kind of where, where we had landed anyway, is that, Hey, like, let me, great to just create this live platform where you can track all the activity around an athlete or a team and then charge an advertiser for that. So I guess I want to come back to this, you know, uh, where you landed after maybe pivoting after having the company for a year or two. And, and let's take a step back to you had experience in events and sponsorships. Tell me, tell me when you decided that this thing around sponsorships, you could turn it into a business. And, and then what was the, the original idea for that business? And then, and then how did you pivot? Why did you decide to pivot? And, and maybe you could just take me through those stages of kind of like pre-incorporating and then maybe that first and second year and then the, the decision to pivot. Yeah. So the sort of pre, the pre, pre-seed round, if you will, or just the, the earliest of the thinking would maybe be the way to describe this. The very early thinking that we had was that there could be a massive market connecting the buyers and the sellers of sponsorship. And again, particularly like at the long tail, just with all these local events where, man, you're running this wonderful local charity or, or you're doing a local sports gathering or a business conference within, within your community or your region. Wouldn't it be great to have like this wonderful large corporate sponsor come in and be able to sponsor 30 of these across the country? Like if you're Ernst and Young, hey, could we provide them the platform to come in and sponsor 30 local events in 30 different cities through our platform? And would be the aggregator, of course, of all those events. They wouldn't have to scour the country for these events, right? Like we would do all that hard work for them. And that was the original vision. And like I mentioned, you know, a few minutes ago, there have been a number of companies that have that have been working on that. There still isn't a major player that has created kind of what I'd call the definitive scaled marketplace for sponsorships. I'm, I'm not sure why that is. It's probably not a conversation for the podcast because it goes into a lot of, you know, like a lot of detail, but, but there are really smart people that have been working on this. Like, okay, how do you bring together buyers and sellers of sponsorship at scale? How do you do that? 
so that was the original vision. And again, like I mentioned, at about year two, we were pretty quickly realizing, hey, the marketplace is lopsided. We got a whole lot of sellers and not a ton of buyers. And and again, I think it was because the ROI piece, right? Like the buyers were somewhat hesitant, like, oh, I, I, all right, if you're going to bring me 30, you know, 30 local events across 30 cities, I got to figure out how to track all the ROI around that. So then we had it you know, like in our head, hey, we, like, we keep hearing this ROI thing from that side of the marketplace. Let's figure out if we can create a SaaS tool that gives these large, you know, these large advertisers the ability to track the ROI of their sponsorships rather than trying to create this marketplace. And, and that's where we, you know, we did our learnings and we did our pivot to a subscription-based service that was a dashboard, right? It was a, it was a real-time kind of dashboard where you can throw an athlete in there. You can throw a team in there, like the Red Sox. You could track all the social media, all the activity, all the TV, all the out-of-home surrounding the Red Sox then it spits you out an ROI number. And so if you're AT&T and you're a big sponsor of the Red Sox, you're going to know, hey, last quarter, as I'm looking in my sponsor hub platform, I can see that the ROI for all our spend with the Red Sox was X. And, they, and we rolled it right up you know, like into a sort of score, if you will, or rating, very much like a Nielsen, right? Like Nielsen kind of built the reputation because they created a rating system. So we were thinking about just creating a rating system for the world of sponsorship. Hmm. Yeah, I guess take me through that. Like, I'm curious, how do you quantify something like a sponsorship? That seems like a pretty challenging task. And yeah, what was, I guess, what was your result? What was the impact? What did people say, you know, once you were kind of using these, uh, these metrics? Yeah. So at first, when we were in the midst of the pivot, it was, um, it was definitely the cart before the horse in a way, or, you know, as every good entrepreneur knows, kind of fake it until you make it, right? It's like, all right, we we now have landed on this vision and we're like, okay, this thing is actually pretty interesting. This can stick with large advertisers and there's probably, you know, some dollars there, right? From these advertisers. And so we were... I, I think our last episode, we talked exclusively about founders selling their idea before they build it. So very appropriate that you're, that you're following that episode. So continue, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Make it up as you go, right? As they say, that... That, those are the words that make my wife so nervous. Like, uh oh, here he goes again. He's, he, he has a project he's working on, but he doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't know what he's doing yet. But, you know, but, but that's the entrepreneurial kind of lifestyle. It, just as an aside, like I look at entrepreneurship as a lifestyle more than anything else, because any project that I do, I'm like, I'm doing it through the entrepreneurial lens. And in fact, I'm looking at ways where I'm able to mitigate the risk, by the way. I'm not trying to take risks that are not mitigated, which is an important thing with entrepreneurship. A lot of entrepreneurs actually are risk averse and they, they're gonna to try to mitigate a ton of risk before they go live, you know, it's before they they endeavor on their mission. So anyway, just an aside there, but so yeah, so we were pivoting and we're like, all right, we think this ROI thing is interesting because man, the amount of of money in sports from, you know, from Puma, right? Like I mentioned earlier from Puma and Bose, all these other guys, these guys like are deploying tens of millions of dollars just for like an Olympics, let alone all year round to all the sports teams out there and all the leagues and all the athlete endorsements that they're doing. It's a whole pile of money. So we thought that that'd be really cool to create a piece of software that could track all their spending, particularly related to sports. And so, um, 
at first we were doing it literally as like research reports, you know, because we didn't have, you know, the software wasn't created yet. So we would go and would make a pitch and we would present that we've got, you know, the ability to kind of roll all these different attributes around a sponsorship, roll them up in a one score, one metric. We're going to be the good housekeeping seal of approval, if you will. We're going to be the Nielsen and we're going to kind of help you track the ROI. And, and so, so a lot of that work was done with, you know, with data crunching, which, which you can make the argument machine learning. And so that was kind of paired up with just humans doing a lot of data crunching, a lot of reporting. And then eventually within a period of pretty quick, I'd say within five, six months, we had a platform that was built out in terms, you know, of a beta version anyway. And it was pretty slick looking and it kind of rolled in like a bunch of metrics surrounding a sponsorship. So like I mentioned earlier, it rolled in the TV spend of AT&T for the Olympic games and it rolled in the out-of-home spend for Puma surrounding the Red Sox, right? So it kind of rolled all those metrics into this platform. And again, you could plug in anything you wanted into this platform. You could throw the Red Sox in there, any team, any athlete, anything that, was, that had enough chatter and noise happening on the social channels, we could track. So that's like early version anyway, within about six, six months or so. So no, no hockey teams at that time. I don't think so. Though I am a big fan of hockey. I've been playing hockey for for many years, but uh, I am a hockey guy. But but I'll tell you, there's just there's not a lot of social media chatter, sadly, around hockey. There's probably more surrounding like Major League Soccer. But uh, so anyway, for your listeners, right? I mean, I feel like there's no shame in pivoting a business. In fact, you're learning quickly and you're pivoting fast. Like a lot of founders will get stuck on their original mission, like. Oh, we've sold this to investors this way. We presented to our family and friends this way. We're just, you know, we we have to continue on this path. I think it's a big mistake. I think if you see a shift or if you see that there's not a product market fit, you know, as they say, like you sort of have to make a pivot. You've got to figure out, all right, if what we thought isn't being validated with unemotional data points, which is really what it is, you, you got to look at things like unemotionally and, hey, if things are not really being validated in this way, then we got to pivot, got to make a change. And so, you know, that's what we did. Yeah, that's awesome. So it sounds like you were really able to stand out against maybe the competition at the time. What did you notice? Like, how did your competition actually respond? Did you did you notice anything in the coming months that was kind of a direct response or what happened? Yeah, that's actually a very good question. So our set of competitors changed when we were doing the marketplace thing. It was a weird moment in time where there were a few other reasonably well-heeled seed stage startups like ourselves and and remember this is in 2011 and a seed round of a million bucks was considered to be maybe what a seed round nowadays of two and a half or three million bucks would be so us plus a, a few others raised about a million apiece as a seed round and we all were kind of like off to the races it was weird because as soon as we launched a couple others launched and so our set of competitors with that marketplace product, that first product, the competitors were early stage startups, most of whom had roughly the same, the same amount of money we had, kind of roughly the same experience of the team, right? Like sort of 
equally healed, more or less. And when we shifted to the new model, when we did that pivot, the set of competitors were literally the exact opposite of that. It was like old school institutionalized agencies like the Nielsen's and even the Rentrax, you know, who we, we eventually kind of exited to, you know, was Rentrack. Like this set of competitors were just, you know, big brand agencies like Omnicom and, you know, IPG that had sub agencies within them that were like doing all this like work around sponsorship ROI. They weren't doing it with the software or the technology. They were doing it, you know, with humans, with spreadsheets, old schools, like spreadsheet tracking. So the set of competitors changed super quick. We ended up teaming up with a few of the agencies because we realized they weren't really competitors. We were just, you know, we realized, ah, we could kind of look like this cool hip startup that can bring them a little bit of sexiness, you know, and pizzazz with their clients, with our tool set. So we ended up teaming with a couple agencies as we rolled into, you know, some clients, which, which I think, you know, was pretty cool. So I think the lessons there are that bigger companies that are established, if you're a startup, don't be afraid to pick up the phone and like ring up a bigger company within your industry and see if there's a way to partner. They might move a little more slowly, but once you get a deal going, you know, they can be a pretty good channel, you know, sales channel. I have some bigger picture questions now about the platform and, you know, these are kind of general, so feel free to take them any direction you want. First one is about the the larger vision for the company. Can you just you know speak to you know once you kind of found you know you were established in the market you know wh- where did you want to take that next? What was the, the the larger vision? The vision thing, I guess, we were so focused on execution. I guess we we were absolutely convinced that the original vision of bringing some clarity and bringing technology to the fifty five billion dollars sponsorship industry, we didn't waver at all within that vision, but we were committed to the fact that the, the, the execution was really what it was all about. Like, okay, if we're not going to execute on a marketplace, let's go execute on this, you know, the SaaS piece. So I think the, the big vision of like providing more transparency through software to that industry at that time in 2011 and probably even now, 10 years later, I mean, you know, it's still a pretty backwoods kind of industry, old school with a lot of in like institutionalized players that just, you know, not incredibly innovative. They're reasonably innovative. And like I say, it, it has gotten better, but, but in terms of like measuring ROI on massive sporting events and entertainment events, it's 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 still kind of a gray area, you know. So I think just just that vision of bringing good transparency and technology. And by the way, this is true for a lot of industries, you know, where startups, you know, are being launched. They just they see that there's there's not a lot of transparency. People doing things very old school, and can they bring something that is unique and different? So, so it isn't like we were like coming up with uh, you know, with something that nobody else had been chasing. But I feel like clarity of purpose, you know, is really important. So you mentioned that the the customers, it's a very an established industry with were you going after those kind of customers or did you have a different customer in mind? What was your strategy for hitting attacking the market? 
we were doing a ton of prospecting, primarily through email and phone calls, no surprise. And we were prospecting with brands and with large advertisers that we had tracked and researched and knew were spending a ton of money in, you know, in the world of live event sponsorship. And these are the brands that, that, that I mentioned earlier. These are the, the Pumas, the Boses, you know, and a bunch of others, you know, the AT&Ts that are deploying, you know, tens of millions of dollars every year on sports teams and athlete endorsements and, you know, the Olympic games and all that kind of stuff. And so it's a pretty finite group of prospects. It isn't like you'd have thousands of clients. You'd probably have hundreds once you got to super scale, you know, but the hundreds would be paying you really well. Whereas like a Zoom, you know, to take Zoom as an example, because, you know, Zoom is on like, you know, like everybody's minds these days, Zoom charges you 15 bucks a month or a hundred bucks a month. They're not charging much, but they get tens of thousands of clients. For Sponsor Hub at scale, if you had a couple hundred of the largest corporations in the world as your clients, you had that hell of a business at scale. Let's let's go under the hood. You know, we talked kind of about the platform. Next, I kind of want to understand like the Sponsor Hub score. You had to come up with some way to quantify these things. Tell me about like how you came up with that and, and, and then what it looked like. If I was on your application uh, and using it, what would that score look like? The sponsor score was our attempt at creating an industry standard rating system, like I mentioned earlier. So t- trying to create almost like a Nielsen metric, like a good housekeeping seal of approval from the old days. If you remember that, I'm, I'm sure your dad does. He's listening in. Your dad's a VC. We should we should give him all the credit due here. But the sponsor hub score was our way of of saying, hey, all those media, all the all the assets surrounding a sponsorship, we're gonna roll them all up into one metric so that you know out of a hundred points, your ten million bucks you spent on the Olympics out of a hundred, the ROI was a eighty-seven or a sixty-five or a ninety-two, and it's rolling in all the money that you spent on TV at that event and you spent on social media spend and you spent on out of home on all your billboard stuff, right? Just everything. So rolling it all together and just, and just giving you one clean score. Hey, at the end of the day, this thing was that effective for you. And then of course, underneath that, if they wanted to, if the advertiser wanted to go ahead and get it, a deeper look at how each of the activities were performing, how their social media was performing, how the billboard advertising was performing. We had all kinds of metrics wrapped around all that stuff too. So, you know, pretty in depth and it looked very elegant on the dashboard, you know, like we're, we're big with UI and with look and feel. So like really wanted this thing to look clean and sexy because it is sports, you know, and there's an expectation that, that um, look and feel, you know, is important because our customers are people that we're using this, you know, we're marketers, you know, and marketers, they just have a, you know, a better nose for look and feel than let's say an engineer would, you know, or a CTO or something. So how do you do that? How do you, how do you develop with, with UI in mind? Is it just as simple as hiring more UI developers? What, what did you do? We had one guy on staff that was fantastic. He was a French kid. And he was literally working 24-7 and just cranking on the UI. And we'd go back and forth, myself and my co-founder and one other person. We were literally going back and forth for a couple of months with him on all the just in all the UI and making sure that things made sense. We trusted our gut because we had enough experience with the industry. This was also at a time in 
New York, which is where the startup was based, where it was difficult to get talent. There was just this class of startups in 2011 that had raised a bunch of money. We were, we were in that class. There were a, a whole pile of them. And there was this race for talent. And it's only gotten worse there, by the way. New York has just the past nine years has been cranking, as you guys know, a lot of startup activity, difficult to get talent. So the, uh, the CTO that, that we hired was, in fact, the highest paid person you know, in the company because we, like, we had to pay for the talent at the time. And I'm sure you know, that if I were launching a startup in New York today, that person would, would be the highest paid person. So look like UI, right? With, with some startups, UI doesn't matter much if, because you just want to get the first version out the door and you want to have customers kind of kick the tires and so forth, right? And they may not care that much about UI. For us, we had to spend a few extra months on it and just make sure that even the first version like felt reasonably sexy. Interesting. So it wasn't necessarily hiring a giant department, but it was like definitely putting in the time and the effort when it came to UI. Correct. We really trusted that that one guy. And then there were th- three of us, you know, that were kind of going back and forth with him and just trying to make sure that this thing made sense. Okay. So we talked about UI being a good selling point. We talked about the sponsor hub score, which I think was kind of key to, you know, your growth and success. Was there any other kind of like secret sauce when it comes to sponsor hub and what made you guys successful? I think pursuing a, pursuing an industry that is large enough is an obvious one, but more than that, pursuing an industry that needs technology and, and where you can see that technology would make it more efficient for one of the constituencies within that industry. And there's, in any industry, you only have buyers and sellers. That's it, right? And so we tried at first to bring both of them together. And then we eventually said, let's just, let's just go after the buyers of sponsorship. And so if you can bring a really good piece of technology to the, to the buy side of an industry, I think that would, that's a really, really big learning for us. And, and one of my buddies who is in fact on the board of Sponsor Hub, who is a serial entrepreneur, he is now running a company that's, that's where they have the same lessons, where he's bringing really good technology to kind of 3D die casting. So, you know, his, his company provides for mom and pop shops to build 3D products using his company's tool set. And he's pre-IPO, he's absolutely killing it. And I think the lesson there is very similar, like bring technology to an old school industry. Sure, a lot of mom and pops in that industry that can use your your tool set. And, he, and he's only dealing with, with one side of the industry, he doesn't care about the other side. So I think being narrow cast, like, like think about a silo first. Don't try to eat the entire world with your startup, you know? Think about a nice narrow cast silo to prove your model. The next question, I guess, is technologically, your product is kind of based on this ability to gather data, capture data, and then analyze it. Is that correct? And then how were you able to do that at scale? Because I imagine this was kind of one of the bigger technical challenges. No, but that's a fair question. I mean, that that did get pretty tricky for us as to how, how best to use technology combined with human power to like crunch the numbers in the right way that it actually provided 
the right data points for these clients to make sense of. And so part of that was technology. Part of that, you know, was human powered, as we like to call it, humans, humans in their bare hands, sort of looking at the data as well and trying to figure out like, okay, what's important to this advertiser? And then using the technology tool that we had built to help to crunch the numbers. And we had some pretty cool algorithms that, that we had built that allowed you to, to pr- like pretty quickly mash up all the disparate assets, you know, of the sponsorship, like I mentioned earlier, you know, the out of home and the social media and the TV and all that, like roll them up, throw them into the algorithm machine and like roll out, you know, the sponsor hub score. So we had some pretty nifty algorithms as we were kind of moving along with the business that allowed you to track that. How did the business model change over time? You know, we talked about the pivot, but yeah, how, how did it, how did it change as the company grew? The business model itself did so. I guess once we did the pivot, we were focused on like execution mode. We didn't we didn't have a ton of shifting around on on the business model per se because it's so like the beauty of SaaS is that it's so clean. I mean, we were playing around with the pricing models quite a bit, trying to figure out like what's what are the right price points for certain you know for certain clients and so forth but but that's more on the you know the revenue side of things what did you mean by that that SaaS is a is a clean is clean SaaS is is to me it's it's such a clean model for startups because you know if you're successful pretty damn quickly because you're going to very quickly be able to look at your KPIs your key performance indicators and you'll be able to know oh am i tracking properly or am i tracking well with my monthly recurring revenue are people that are using this platform what are the what's the time on platform what's the time per day or week or month on this platform is that scaling like it's just so it's so incredibly efficient and and the best of all is with SaaS, like the numbers they don't lie like either either your your revenue is going up or it's not and if it's not there's a problem because with SaaS, with every new client that you onboard, the margins are the same. Your margins aren't going to go, your margins should not be going down unless you suddenly have staffed up a whole shitload of people. Excuse my French. Like you are, you're probably going to see pretty quickly, like month over month, revenue, maybe not hockey sticking, but certainly revenue going in the direction that that it ought to be going. If it's not problem alert, right? There's a problem alert there. And again, unless you have, thrown on a bunch of expenses all of a sudden, then sure, your margins, you know, are going to go down. But the, the beauty of SaaS is, you, you know, out of the gate, if, you know, there's kind of product market fit or not. And we all know, like as entrepreneurs, you don't need more than five, six, seven, eight clients to figure out whether your business is going. And if it is great, then you come out and you can raise, you know, your next round on that initial group of clients that are loving your product. That's really great stuff. I want to tie a bow on the kind of sponsorship part of the the podcast, and then we'll move more into bigger picture lessons for kind of founders of all industries. So this will be the last kind of sponsorship question. Where do you think the, the, the future of the industry is? Like, what do you think about it? And where do you think it's going? Who's going to own the next 10 years of sponsorships? Well, fast forward to 2016, Sponsor Hub, or I guess late 2015, your dad was an investor in the company as well. And Late 2015, we sold the company to Rentrack. The very next week, Rentrack merged with Comscore, and 
Comscore is the largest competitor to Nielsen. So it brings you all the way back around to this whole kind of ratings thing. Rentrack, which most people wouldn't even have ever heard that name, and we hadn't until we came across them. But Rentrack was, until they merged with Comscore, the definitive rating system for film. So if if you were doing advertising, product placements, and all that kind of stuff in film, Rentrack were the primary player within that space. Plus, they had a bunch of other products. And you know, publicly traded company market cap of a couple of billion way back then, but but just like very under the radar, like you would never have heard of the company. So we kind of really like them, and we're like these guys have scaled. They got a great roster of clients, and so we. The team, the product, the technology went in, went into that company. And then, like I say, the very next week, Rentrack merged with Comscore. And then it was kind of off to the races to get the product running across all the Comscore clients, if you will. And then your question was, hey, like, where are we going, right? Like, so there's been pretty cool, like, in, in the events industry over the past few years, there's been some super cool startups that are helping the event organizers. I'm sure your listeners know them. There's a ton of them out there from Splash to Eventbrite. Well, Eventbrite has been around a while, but there's Splash and there's a bunch of others. There's events.com and these guys have scaled pretty well and they're helping the event organizer side with cool technology so that the event attendees are feeling loyal and sticky to the event organizers. But there hasn't been, there hasn't been much on the sponsorship side frankly. So I don't know where technology in sponsorship is going. I still think there's a place there for somebody to create a two-sided marketplace. I just feel like over the past 10 years, I haven't seen anybody really scale that yet. And, and it could be lack of time and money. It could be lack of ability. It could be a lot of things. And I know that Eventbrite and a few others have build out a sponsorship side of their business, but I don't know at what kind of scale, you know? So I think technology aside, the sponsorship industry continues to grow every year. These advertisers are deploying a whole ton of money at sports and entertainment events, let alone all of the B2B events out there, you know, and, you know, the business conferences, they're, they're massive. I mean, up where you, where you live, you know, in San Francisco, you've got the center is jammed pretty much every week with, with thousands of attendees. So I think sponsorship of events continues to be enormous. I'm just incredibly surprised that nobody has cracked the nut on this whole like two-sided marketplace, right? Like creating a platform online that allows buyers and sellers of sponsorship, you know, to come together. Well, as the world turns digital, I'm sure somebody's going to find a way. So every every CEO, every every founder has, you know, huge challenges running a company. Tell me about maybe one of those moments where, you know, it was like you, you, you're not sure if you're going to make it out of this. What was, what was one of the most memorable challenges you faced while building Sponsor Hub? I think probably a lot of the unknowns, and this, this is pretty common, I imagine, is always looking at the end of cash. So, okay, we have cash until X date. What can we get accomplished during that time? And sort of perpetually raising money and knowing that you're going to have to raise money right around the corner these are things that really is a second job because you're you're constantly thinking about aligning resources with money in the bank and it's a game of arbitrage you know it's it's no different than in your personal life you got x 
X money in the bank, you got Y things that you want to buy in your life, that car, that house, that this, that, that. Okay, but I'm only able to afford that level of car, that level of house. And so it's constant like arbitraging of, of your business, just like you do on when you arbitrage your life. And so thinking about resources, okay, we got to get X, we got to get this accomplished in the next two months. Like how, how do we deploy resources properly without running out of money? Constant challenge for a startup. And on that one, I think you can run afoul if you're too conservative. Some founders are just, oh my God, I raised this round. I want to look at the money in the bank for a while. I don't want to spend any of it. You know, that's kind of one, one mistake, one error. And then I think the other is maybe spending a little too quickly or wildly even. So there's a balance there. There is. I mean, I think if you have raised money, you have a responsibility to go and deploy it. Don't sit on it. Go and deploy it, but deploy it as effectively as you can. And that is more judgment than skill. I mean, I think it's just like judgment calls more than anything else. Yeah, making decisions. It's never easy. Any other lessons? You know, these are good lessons for founders. Do you have anything else that you learned as a, as a leader at a company for, for that many years that you'd like to share? God, I just think that, like I said earlier, you know, this entrepreneurial stuff is really a lifestyle more than anything else. It isn't like you, you can drop into it and then leave it. I don't know, with the exception of one founder, this is true, with the exception of one founder over the years, I don't know of any other founders that have stopped being in the entrepreneurial world once they sold their company. I only know of one. And for the past 15 years, when he sold his business, he now is working still after 15 years for the company that he sold the business to. And he's, he's, he's a corporate guy. But every other entrepreneur that I've invested in or that I have as, as a pal and a friend, these folks are continue to start new projects and businesses. They're not trading in the entrepreneurial suit for the corporate skin. You know, I, I just think it's a lifestyle. So like either you're built that way or you're not, you know, like I mentioned earlier, my wife, right? Like she's, she's just not, she's not constructed that way. She did incredibly well at American Express when she was an executive there, but um, she, you know, she's not constructed to work in an environment with, with no backstop, with not a lot of rules or where you've got to make up the rules as you go, right? It's just, it's a certain kind of mindset and a certain type of personality that would, that would launch a business. I would agree with that. I would also say like entrepreneurs, founders, you know, they do such interesting things. I think there are lessons to take away for regular working folks that maybe aren't going to start companies to, that they can actually take from entrepreneurs. So I guess my question here as we wrap up is, you know, you know, as someone who lives this lifestyle, what about it like brings you joy? Why, why do you do it? What, what, why do you wake up every morning and, and decide, you know, I'm still going to keep doing this today. This is, this is me. This is what I do. That's the layup question, you know, for entrepreneurs, because it's so easy to answer if you're an entrepreneur. And I, and I mean that kind of wholeheartedly. It's like being able to wake up and know that your pattern today is different from your pattern yesterday and the actions and the activities you'll be doing today are different than yesterday is wonderful. Death to me looks like waking up each day and from nine to five doing the same stinking thing 
and having having a boss that tells me how to do it and what to do and when to do it and and again that's just that's just you know my philosophy but like waking up and like being able to to create your day is a truly wonderful thing and i think it just leads to my overarching feeling about entrepreneurship which is freedom you know and i think freedom is doesn't come without a lot of discipline. You got to plan your day and you got to manage it well. But I think ultimately what you're after, you know, is freedom. Okay. So let's talk about freedom. What are you doing these days with that freedom? I'm interested just to hear a little bit about your life after Sponsor Hub. What do you, what do you do? And uh, yeah, talk about, talk about what you do today. I am running a business called the Executive Council and the Executive Council much like that mass e-commerce association, the Massachusetts e-commerce association that I mentioned at you know the beginning of our call, much like that, the council is a network of um, senior business leaders, mostly from larger enterprise companies, not from the startup world. But having said that, we you know we host events that cater to founders and to VCs, but but a lot of our constituency at the council are large enterprise execs. And we host events in 35 cities worldwide. And of course, everything is virtual now. But um, And the council's mission is like to bring together fantastic execs that are focused on leadership and innovation, like super, super broad brush, right? Like CTOs, CFOs that are trying to transform their organizations. And we bring them together in very small environments, like 15 to 20 people settings private events, no press allowed, no social media, right? Just very much cider house rules, as I call it, where what is said in the vault stays in the vault and the conversations, you know, are private in nature. And it's it's a wonderful network and a wonderful way for these executives to come together, you know, and spend time with each other. And not surprisingly, our business model is sponsorships. We make money from companies that want to come in and sponsor these events we're doing. So it's a, it's a lot of fun and we've did a massive pivot of course in March, massive. And it was l- literally revenue went almost to zero, right? Like with everybody else in the events industry. And then we quickly, we pivoted the business. We're like, okay, let's turn on virtual events as quickly as we can. And now it feels almost kind of normal to us. Oh yeah, we have another, we got an, another webinar next Tuesday, you know, one next Wednesday or one next Thursday, right? Like turning on a whole pile of webinars for sponsors all the time now, just like we were doing with uh, the face-to-face events. So it's kind of funny how quickly, like what can become normal was not at all normal, you know, six months ago. So, you know, having a lot of fun with this group, with the exec council. Secondly, I'm doing angel investing. I've got about 12 active investments. I did a, I did a biotech deal last week. And so I got about 12 active investments at the moment through the Executive Council Ventures, it's called. It's really, you know, just a ventures arm and it's it's not a fund. It's just my own money. And uh, I really like that stuff. I like that work where you get to spend time you know, with entrepreneurs. And there's a couple of boards that I'm on as well, one of which is a publicly traded uh, company. So yeah, you know, that's that's kind of how I feel the rest of the days. Yeah, I actually heard, I think you're, you've invested in a previous guest on the show, uh, Hirsch Tapadia? Sure. All Stacks, yeah. All Stacks, yeah. 
Awesome. How's that one going? Just curious. You know, I've I I probably haven't spoken to her live for a good, I'd say summertime ish, and he mm-hmm. sent out an update in the fall. But um, it it sure looked like those guys are off to the races. And uh, he's one thing I'll tell you is when I when I read his 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 most recent roundup, if you will, or his most recent update for investors. I was literally like, this This founder is way more buttoned up than maybe any other founder that I've met. The precision with the deck that he shared with his investors, the level of detail, the transparency, I was like, this is really, really impressive. And that was only for his investors. It's not like he was, you know, so it's just incredibly buttoned up. I have, I have a lot of respect for what they're doing over there. And I know it's still pretty early days. You know, but but those guys, I would say, keep an eye on them over the next kind of three to five years. You know, a lot of good things I think will be coming out of that shop for sure. Yeah, and, and we had a great talk on the podcast. We we I learned I just remember learning so much. Um, I remember sitting in my living room as I recorded that one and just like thinking about how much of those lessons applied to my own uh, work. Working, making life easier for the engineers. What could you know? I mean, for crying out loud, that's a that's a high calling, you know, because, you know, engineers right now are like human gold, you know, everybody needs, like, you need to keep your engineers happy or you you have no business. Yup. And they're probably just getting harder and harder to, um, I don't know. I feel like (laughs) acquire is not the right word, but, um, hire might be better. Yeah. We're talking about people here. Yep. yep. Uh, (laughs) Okay. So you spoke a bit about adapting your life to COVID. Actually, here's my last question. You know, now we're living uh, in a global pandemic. It's actually really hard. Uh, you spoke about, you know, having freedom every day to plan your day and, and, and figure out what you're going to do. And you're, personal hell might look like a nine to five where you're told what to do every day uh, and you have to do it over and over. A lot of people do feel like, you know, the days are the same because, you know, you can't move out of your house. You're stuck indoors. You're on the same Zoom calls with the same people uh, weekly. So maybe how, how do you kind of uh, add that variety, that spice of life uh, into your day? And maybe tell me just about, you know, how you plan your day to, to especially today, given the given the situation. Yeah, that's a great question because it it can feel like the same thing every day if you're jumping into these, you know, your Zoom calls with your team, you, you know, and so forth. And I think mixing up your task list each day is key, you know, and we talked a little bit about that earlier. I mean, obviously, there's going to be certain things that you have to get done each day, but if you can mix up your task list, it's going to feel like a different day because, you, you know, even this no, like even jumping into your car and driving to your office. We can't even really be doing that anymore. And that at least mixed up your day a little bit. You, you got dressed, you got in your car, you know, I, you know, I spend half of my day in the boxer shorts and the t-shirt like, Oh, wait a second. I need to go get the workout now. And I need, you know, need to change up. Right. So I think, um, getting a, a little bit of, of activity in, in your task list is key. I think the second thing is getting outside. I don't care if it's cold or if it's snowing or raining, whatever, just get outside, you know, take a walk, do some exercise. Really, really important. My day typically is in bursts. That's just how I work best, whether it's within a day or a week or a month, I work in bursts. 
So I might sit from 8 a.m. until 10 for two hours and get the most important stuff of the day done. I'm going to get that done instantly right away. And then usually 10 or 10.30, I go for a workout for an hour and it's maybe out on the deck. I live in Los Angeles, so it's always nice, you know, maybe out on the deck, maybe for a walk on the trails. But either way, mid-morning, I'm out for an hour or so doing a workout. Then I get back and... um Usually, when I get back, I'm going to jump. I'm going to jump on the laptop again, have a little bite, right? And then the rest of the afternoon is 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 a mix of work stuff. It's 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 going to be Zoom calls because you can't escape it. It's you know it's going to be client work. You know it's going to be kind of in the weeds a bit with the team. And then the good thing about living on the West Coast is by the time it gets to 4 p.m. or so it gets super quiet because all the East coasters, you know, they're already done. So, so it's, so it's kind of nice in that, you know, you have the ability to wind your day down without a lot of frenetic craziness. Like you can wind your day down pretty, pretty reasonably. So that's kind of how I like to mix my day up. I check my stocks occasionally. I'm not a, you know, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a day trader, you know, or anything, but I'd like to keep an eye on my, my investments and my Bitcoin. Everybody loves everybody loves crypto these days. So you know, I spend maybe I don't know twenty minutes a day just sort of looking at that stuff, and you know, but but again, I'm not uh, certainly by no means you know a trader. But um, so you know, that's that's generally what the kind of nine to five looks like. the The only other thing I'd suggest is I love having large chunks of time on the calendar that are completely open space. And it, for me, it, it, it has to be three hours. It can't be any less because if I've got a couple of three hour windows open each week, I'm going to pour my head into those three hours on a project and I'm going to do some critical thinking and I'm going to do some writing. And it's usually the bigger picture stuff. But for me, like I need three hours to get any, anything accomplished on a bigger picture project. So I like having chunks of time through the course of the week that are just vacant on the calendar, you know. That's really interesting. Thanks for sharing all that. I'm going to definitely try and, and, and adapt some of those practices myself. It sounds like sounds like a pretty good work day, I'll be honest. Well, and we didn't even chat about the evening yet, but I have to admit that I'm on email at night, as I'm sure we all are. So yeah. I feel like, you know, the evening is a bit of another work day, but not entirely. Let's call it 30 to 60 minutes, right? It's... <laughs> It's not going to be more than an hour at night, but it's always something, you know, it's a chunk of time. (laughs) Important, important to get those emails out, especially when you're making, making podcasts, communicating with people. It's definitely a challenge, but. Agreed. All right. Well, thank you so much. This has been awesome. Before we go, you know, what's the best way for our listeners to reach you? I know that you, you send out some, some knowledge on the podcast airways yourself. So uh, why don't you, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I do have a podcast I've been doing since um, April, not surprisingly, when everybody turned virtual. And uh, yeah, it's it's really been a lot of fun, like tapping into the exec council network of executives and leaders and bringing them into the podcast. We've had Venus Williams. We've had CEOs of sports teams. We've had pretty prominent venture capital folks, you know, in the finance world. Just like a cool mix of people that that have something to say that is interesting and that that I think that people would like to hear from. So I wouldn't say there's a commonality per se, but these are 
you know, these are personalities from business, sports and entrepreneurship and venture, you know, that, that are interesting people. And, um, we send that out to the exec council's list of about a half a million folks worldwide. So we have a pretty, you know, we've got pretty good reach already on that podcast with, with our database and, um, you know, having, having a lot of fun with it. And if you just, if you Google executive council, you'll find us execcouncil.org and, uh, we're there. All right, Bob, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, we're going to end the show there. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a rating if you're able. Thanks for joining today. I was, I really appreciate, uh, getting to learn about, you know, the sponsorship industry. It's something I'm like kind of familiar with because of sports, but never really understood, but I know it's a big deal. So yeah, thank you for, for hopping on and, and teaching us and yeah, just uh, appreciate you sharing your time. Thank you. I like really enjoyed it.